Revelation chapter 20, and you may want to keep your finger in Isaiah, starting in chapter 2 of Isaiah, because toward the end of the sermon, we're going to go through quite a few passages in the book of Isaiah. So, Revelation 20 and Isaiah, you can maybe start in chapter 2, will be kind of our, our stomping grounds today. Well, when we get to Revelation 20, we're at the place now in the vision that, that John has where the Antichrist and his armies are defeated. Armageddon is over. The rebellion is over. The king of kings stands victorious in Jerusalem. But, of course, it, that's not the end. We, we still have a few chapters left. In fact, it's just the beginning because while the majority of the book of Revelation covers a seven-year period, these last few chapters of Revelation cover a thousand years and then on into eternity. And so this is just the beginning of, of, of much more that's in store for us in these future things that Jesus told John to record. So, you know, Jesus taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? That's how we're supposed to pray. Lord, we want things here like they are there. Perfect, right? That's our prayer. Well, today we're going to study the time when that prayer is answered. The thousand-year reign of Christ, the day when the king and the kingdom is finally here. So chapter 20, we begin in verse 1. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him, that he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years should be fulfilled, and then after that he must be loosed for a little season. So, the last time we saw this key to the bottomless pit, this prison for fallen angels and demons, Revelation 9 verse 1 told us it was given to a fallen angel so he could open it and let some of these really rough and tumble guys out. Well, now we see the key back in the hand of a faithful angel, and he's not coming to let anyone out. He's coming to throw someone in. For it says he has the key and a great chain in his hand. Uh, the word there means a massive metal links with cuffs for binding a prisoner. And why does he hold these two things, the key and the cuffs? Well, it says in verse 2, and he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years. He just grabs hold. The word there, laid hold, means to grab, to seize, or to arrest. He, he arrests, it says, that old serpent. Literally, it means the snake from the beginning, the one who tempted Eve there in the garden. And then we see some of his other descriptions, which is the devil and Satan. The word devil or diabolos there in the Greek, it, it just means the slanderer. And it's, it's, you know, we think of the devil as a, a, a caricature, a picture, an image, right? You know, a guy with a pitchfork and, a, you know, pointy tail and, you know, horns and, you know, a really nice smile, but he's actually, you know, uh, no, I, I was going to say something, I'm not going to do that. But, uh, you know, he's, you know, wolf in sheep's clothing, but really not. But anyway, you know, you infer what you want from that. Uh, but the idea of the devil it does, it's not that image, it's the slanderer, the one who, who, you know, lies about the Lord, he lies to us, he lies about us, and he, he accuses us, uh, you know, before um, the Lord, uh, and of course accuses us to ourselves. Uh, 
The other name that we see here, Satan or Satanos in the Greek, is it just means the adversary. He's the enemy. So that's a name he gets. Again, we conjure up Satan, this idea of some disgusting creature or whatever, and, and, uh, and, and yet the word is not meant to describe that. It's meant to describe just the fact that he's our enemy, the enemy of our souls, right? And we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against this, right? That's where our, our bat, real battle is against, you know, the principalities and powers. His given name is none of these things, serpent, devil, or Satan. His given name is Lucifer. Um, we know that from the book of Isaiah chapter 14. It means shining star, morning star, or light bearer. That was how God created him. That was what God intended him to be, one of the cherubim that would cover God with his wings. But when Satan fell, he fell hard, and he became a liar, a thief, and a murderer very different than what God created him to be. He rebelled, and he became those things. He is our chief adversary because of the accusations he brings against us. And so here's the good news, that no one will have to listen to any of his lies or his accusations for a very long time because he will be bound, imprisoned with these massive chains for a thousand years. And then he doesn't just chain him up and put a gag in his mouth and say, I'll see you in a thousand years. He takes him and he throws him into this bottomless pit, this abyss. He cast him into the bottomless pit and he shut him up. He closed the door and set a seal, not upon him, but above him. In other words, on the door. Remember when Daniel was thrown into the lion's den, the pit that, that, that the lions were in, and they rolled something on top of it and they sealed it with the king's seal. And the idea was, once that's sealed, you can't get in without the king's permission. So the idea is he sets his seal to let us know he can't sneak out. There's no breakouts. I don't care, you know, if anyone ever got out of Alcatraz, no one's getting out of here without the Lord letting them out. He says he seals it to ensure that he will be safe there and, 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 and uh, he'll be, we'll be safe from him there. He'll be stuck there, it says, for a thousand years, that he should deceive the nations no more. Now, Adam and Eve, they were culpable for their decisions to rebel against the Lord, to disobey God. The Antichrist and the false prophet, though they were leaders of mankind's rebellion at the end, they were culpable for their decisions. Every person who listens to Satan's lies and decides to disobey the Lord answers for their own decisions. However, Satan was the chief instigator of all those things, and he will be barred from influencing the decisions of men for a thousand years. Doesn't that sound awesome? <laughs> I mean, I guess the idea of him being barred from messing with me for a thousand years sounds great, you know, let alone the rest of the world. Not his influence in my life at all. Can you imagine, you know, a world without the enemy's influence? Can you imagine a world, your own life without the enemy's influence? This is just one of the reasons that John cries out at the end of the vision of Revelation, come quickly, Lord Jesus. I want that. I want that. That's awesome. Now, he's not there forever. It says that until the thousand years should be fulfilled, completed, and after that he must be loosed, set free for a little season. The, the word there, must, is, it means it, is, it will be presently necessary. In other words, it's not necessary for him to be loose on the loose during the thousand years, but there's going to be a present situation after those thousand years that will re- require him to be loose. We'll study that next week because we're not going to get very far today. But just keep that in the back of your mind. Now, the little season, it just means a very small period of time. We're not given the exact time, but it's not going to be long. 
Uh, we'll get an explanation for that in verse 7, so you've got to come back next Sunday to find out. For now, though, we're going to move on. Now that Satan's imprisoned, now we're going to move on to those who will rule and reign with Christ for a thousand years. Verse 4. And I saw thrones, and doesn't mean they sat upon them at that point in time. They do that because the next part says, and judgment was given unto them. So the idea is something is transferring, something is being uh, conferred upon them. But it means I saw thrones and the one sitting upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw something else also. He says, the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshiped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that has part in the first resurrection. On such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So here we come to the millennial reign. I mean, it's summed up here only in three verses, a thousand years in three verses. So there's a lot here because certainly the rest of the Scripture talks a lot about these thousand years. But let's start here with this idea of Jesus giving authority to, of, for those to reign by His side. It says, and I saw thrones. And this is very similar to the vision that Daniel saw in Daniel chapter 7 when he sees the beast, uh, you know, uh, the beasts, four beasts emerge who will be the four world powers there uh, in the world, on the world stage at the end. And then after that, it says he saw thrones. Daniel 7 verses 9 and 10, and I beheld till thrones were set up, cast down, the King James says, but thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days did sit and whose garment was white as snow, the hair of his head was like pure wool, his throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from, from his presence, from before him. Thousand thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. So two groups. The judgment was set. The word there, judgment, means the court was set, and the books were opened. So the idea is that Daniel sees something very similar to what John sees here. When Jesus comes back, he sees two groups who are judgment or the ability to rule or, you know, determine, you know, um, a, like in a court setting, uh, innocence or guilt, right or wrong, is conferred upon these two groups. And here John sees two groups. The first group that he mentions here is us. He says, I saw thrones and the ones sitting upon them, and judgment was given unto them. We already know from the rest of the part here in the book of Revelation that those who are sitting on these thrones, you know, they, are, they were the 24 elders representative of the church, right? You know, so, so we know that this is referring to us. And it says at this point in time that judgment was given unto them, the authority to determine guilt or innocence, the authority to determine guilt, uh, to judge guilt or innocence. When we return with Jesus in Revelation 19 where it says, and his army came with him clothed in white, right, white and clean, we come, we're going to watch him wipe out the enemy, deal with all of his enemies, and then when he comes to Jerusalem as king, we're going to follow him there, and as he sets up his kingdom, he's going to confer on us the authority to rule by his side. Now, this is not the only place the Scriptures talk about this. In Revelation chapter 2, verses 26 through 28, when Jesus is giving, writing his letter you know, to the church at Thyatira, he, he gives, says to him that overcomes, and he gives this same promise. Revelation 2, 26, and 
to the one that overcomes and keeps my works unto the end, to him I will give power, that's that word, authority to rule over the nations. Very clearly. And then it mentions what Jesus, he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I have received of my Father. So this is what we will be granted to rule by his side as he rules with the rod of iron. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul uses this truth as an argument for why Christians shouldn't be suing each other in worldly courts. You know, if we have a problem with a brother or sister, it should be taken care of inside the church. And he explains the reasoning why. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 3 or verse 2, do you not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters, things of this life? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? So the concept, the idea here is not new to Revelation 20. We see that we will rule and reign with Christ all throughout the Scriptures, and here we are conferred that authority. Now, what does it mean that we'll determine innocence or guilt? You know, well, when, when a situation rises up and someone's going to do something they're not supposed to do, we'll, we'll be in our new bodies. We'll be able to be immediately there and say, bad, you know, eat bad. No, no, that's not good. You know, this guy is innocent. You're guilty in the slammer, you know, and, and, or whatever it is. I don't know what the rod of iron will be. I don't know if we just bop them on the head and move on. I don't know. I, I mean, I know I'm being silly here. I don't know exactly all the details because the scriptures don't, you know, give us all the intimate details of what that will be. But whatever area that, that you're, you're going to be given, you know, authority to judge this, determine these things, that's what your responsibility will be. You'll be able to be right there and ensure that, that none of those things happen, none of those evil things happen. And, and if someone attempts to do those things, they'll be, you'll be the one to make sure that they're stopped and keep them from doing it. The second group that John sees here, he says, and the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus, for the word of God, and who had not worshiped the beast or taken his mark. Here we find the gruesome method that the Antichrist uses to execute those who refuse to worship him during the great tribulation. The martyred tribulation saints here, they will be beheaded, it says here, for three things. It mentions for their testimony, for the, te- the witness, the testimony of Jesus, Secondly, for the Word of God, and thirdly, for not worshiping the Antichrist and taking his mark. These are three attributes that identify every believer. The testimony of Jesus, what is the witness of Jesus? We talked about that a few weeks ago in Revelation 19 when it said the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. You know, why do we study prophecy? Again, it's not just we can go, cool stuff, you know, or interesting stuff, weird stuff. We don't do it for that. We study prophecy because The testimony of Jesus is the work of Jesus in our life changing us, you know? They were killed for declaring that Jesus changed them, that Jesus could only do that. He was the only person who could do that. No man could do what Jesus does in a person's life, and that no one, therefore, and nothing else was worth following besides Jesus. That's why they were killed. Secondly, it says they were killed for the Word of God, for believing what the Scriptures say is true, and for living out what the Scriptures say, and for sharing the truths of the Scriptures with others. That's the second reason they were killed. And then thirdly, they were killed because they worshiped Jesus alone. They refused to bow to the Antichrist. 
When we talk about the religion of Christianity, it means many things to many different people. I, I, as, you know, people find out I'm a pastor, I'm like, oh, you're a priest, you know? And I'm like, well, not quite, you know, not at all, actually, you know? I mean, not, not any more so than any Christian is, you know? And we'll get to that later. But, but, you know, there's obviously lots of ideas that people have about Christianity. In fact, unfortunately, Christianity means many things even to those who profess Christianity. But this here is how the Bible defines being a believer in Jesus. Anything else besides the, that you have the testimony of Christ, the Word of God, and that you worship Jesus alone, right? Anything else, you know, that you can add to that, you know, you know, part of the local cleanup crew in the community, whatever, anything else that you add to that may be faith in something. But if that's how you define Christianity, then it's not faith in the Jesus of the Bible. I'm not saying those are bad things to do, but that's not Christianity. This is Christianity. Anything else is not faith in the Jesus of the Bible, and that faith does not emulate those who follow Jesus in the Bible. And so I ask you this morning an important question. Does this verse describe your Christianity? Not the beheading part, but but the attributes of, of why, like what made up their Christianity. Does that describe your Christianity? You know, that Jesus is changing you and that you believe Jesus alone is worth following. That you believe what God says in his word and you seek to live it out. And that you bow the knee only to Jesus. You see, when that is your Christianity, it's not a religion. It's a relationship, right? It's a relationship. Because when you've experienced this supernatural work in changing your life, and you've experienced his love, whatever else is being offered to you doesn't compare. And so when the Antichrist says to them, but you don't understand what we're fighting for here, you don't understand what we're trying to do, it's better than anything else. And they're going to look at him and go, no, it's not. No, it's not. I'll take your life. Take it. What I have is better. What I have is better. Because you see, Jesus gave his life for me. He's with me through it all. He promises to never leave me. And no matter how wonderful someone is, no one else can promise that. No one else can keep that promise. I love him because he first loved me, and he keeps on loving me, and he always, always will. Right? Nothing else compares. Phil Wickham wrote a new song recently called His Name is Jesus. And it's a great song. I encourage you to listen to it. But I love the lyrics of the pre-chorus and then the, the chorus. And the pre-chorus starts like this. It says, there's never been a love so great. He died so we could live. And then he rose up from that grave. Name another king like this. And now all authority forever belongs to him. He reigns in victory. Name another king like this. His name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. Light of the world, there is freedom in his name. Awesome in power and reigning forever. Light of the world, there is freedom in his name. You know, we have brothers and sisters in Afghanistan right now and and other parts of the world. It just doesn't usually come to our attention as much as this one. You know, that are 
either giving their lives for their faith right now or being forced to make that decision right now. Life here or Jesus. And I've often wondered what I would decide if I was faced with execution because of my faith. Well, I think we're all very aware of our weakness and our, our, our frailty and the fact that we might do anything at any given moment. I can tell you this, though. No code of conduct, no set of rules that someone throws my way, no membership to a tax-exempt organization is going to motivate me to retain my faith. It will be the testimony of Jesus, his work in my life, that I love him and that I will be with him forever when I breathe my last year. If I do the right thing in that moment, that will be why. It will be my relationship with him and all that he promises me for eternity, nothing else. That promise. That's what caused Peter, James, and John to leave the nets behind. You know, Peter, that moment, you know, when this is before they leave the nets behind, they're out fishing, and, you know, Jesus says, throw the nets on this side. You know, and Peter's like, I do this for a living, Lord. I know a little bit more about fishing than you do. How about you keep to the sermons on righteousness, and I do the fishing. I mean, it doesn't say that, but that's kind of the idea. You know, I've been fishing all night. You know, that's kind of the idea of what he's saying. Nevertheless, if you want me to do it, boss, I'll do it. And of course, when the fish get hauled in, the boats are sinking, and Peter doesn't matter to him. He just falls down before the Lord, and he says, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. What's wrong with me? You know? And when Jesus looks at him, don't be afraid. I'm going to make you fishers of men. I'm going to use you. I mean, You've never been a king like that. Never. So when he came walking by, you know, months or weeks later, we don't know how long went between, it, doesn't, it makes perfect sense for him to say, come follow me. And he's like, yep, let's go. I want to be with that guy. That's the reason why Matthew was able to walk up from the table, you know, where all the, the taking taxes, living the life, you know, working for the government. Traded to his people, but worth the price. He left it all behind. Gave it all away afterwards. Be with Jesus. That promise is what caused Stephen to preach, knowing full well it would probably mean his death. And it did. The idea, the concept, the conviction, I want to be with Jesus more than anyone or anything else. That's what these guys do here. So John, he sees them as souls here. They can't stay as souls uh, if they're going to reign with Jesus, so they need to be resurrected. So this little last part here, it says here, and they lived, literally it means they came back to life, and they reigned with Jesus Christ a thousand years. They reigned with Christ a thousand years. Now, there are two phases to the resurrection program of the Lord. Um, and so this resurrection, of course, doesn't involve unbelievers yet. Look at verse 5. But the rest of the dead, what remained of the dead, those who have died, they did not live. Again, they were not brought back to life, resurrected, until the thousand years were finished. So this, what we're seeing here in verse 4, is the first resurrection. This is the conclusion of that, that first resurrection program. Now, that means, of course, that even though there's a group not listed here in verse 4, they are already resurrected, and that's all the Old Testament saints, right? We know that they're going to get new bodies too. So 
when does that happen since it's not recorded here? We know that we're resurrected at the rapture. We know that these guys, are the tribulation saints, are resurrected right here at this moment when Jesus sets up his kingdom because he sees the souls before they're resurrected. So when are the Old Testament saints raised from the dead? Well, there's a few views out there. there. One view is that the Old Testament saints all rose from the dead when Jesus rose from the dead. They were part of that first fruits. For example, in, in Matthew chapter 27, verses 21 through, 20, 21 through 23, what do I have written down? 51 through 53. It mentions that when the, he, he breathed his laugh, cried out, and gave up the ghost, it says that the veil was torn right in the temple from top to bottom. And then, it, then this little part, like if you don't read your Bible or if you kind of casually read it, you, you won't notice it where it says, and all the saints came up out of their graves and they went walking around Jerusalem. David's like, hey, everybody. You know? I don't think that was just the idea of, you know, people who recently died there. Anyone buried in Jerusalem, at the very least, they're walking around Jerusalem. So some people believe it was all the Old Testament saints that were raised there, resurrected there. Others believe that they'll be resurrected the same time as the church is. When you read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 through 23, you can do that on your own time, but it, it mentions you know, this, this program of the first resurrection. Jesus is the first fruits. Then the next one, it says, they that are Christ at his coming. So certainly they belong to Christ in that sense. He's their Messiah. So they would say, well, they get, they get resurrected when we get raptured. You know, just like Christians who have died get resurrected. The final view is that it's just off record. It's something that happens that the Bible doesn't talk about it. In Daniel chapter 12, um, in, in verses 1 through 3, it mentions that, you know, there shall be a time of trouble, Jacob's trouble, that's never been, that no nation's ever seen since ever nations were in the world. That's in Daniel 12.1, describing the great tribulation, those seven years. And then it says in verse 2 of Daniel 12, and after that, many will be raised to life, some to you know, blessing and then some to judgment and shame. So some people believe that they'll get resurrected when Jesus returns. Uh, and then the last ones to get resurrected are the tribulation saints. I don't know which one it is. It uh, doesn't really matter because whichever view you take, they have their new bodies by this point because the only ones left to be resurrected are unbelievers. That's why everyone who participates in this first resurrection phase is blessed. Look at verse 6. Blessed and holy is he that has part in the first resurrection. For the, on such, the, uh, the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Here we see the blessing of the first resurrection. The word blessed, it means happy are they, favored are they. They've experienced God's favor, God's blessing in their life, and because of that, they are happy. And secondly, they are holy. In other words, we don't just sit on a cloud and play a harp, all right? We got stuff to do. The word holy means dedicated, set, aspar, set apart for special service to God. So you will have unique roles that, that God will call you to, you know, throughout eternity, and in particular in the millennial kingdom when you get your, when, because uh, you'll have your new body. And it says here, blessed and holy is he that has part in the first resurrection. The word here, part, means one who shares an experience with others. So this is the first clue that the word first resurrection doesn't mean first in order, but first in kind. There are multiple parties that are part of the first resurrection, the Old Testament saints, the church, and of course the tribulation saints here that we see. So we see that this is a first kind of resurrection, a resurrection to life. 
The second resurrection, of course, is called a, it's called the second death. So it's a resurrection not to life, but to death. We'll get to that next week. Now, this is the fifth beatitude that we find in the book of Revelation. There are seven total. And there are two reasons why this is such a blessing. First off, the first reason this is a blessing is because they get to be part of something. They get to experience something here. They're going to be experience the way we're going to experience the, way, uh, the world the way God meant it to be, which is awesome. <laughs> the way God meant things to be is awesome. What does that world look like? Turn to Isaiah chapter 2. And you're going to get the cliff notes on Isaiah this morning. Isaiah 2. If we wanted to do a study of the millennial kingdom, we would probably spend about six or seven weeks because we'd have to go through all of Ezekiel 40 through 48 and lots of other things. You know, um, I don't have, we're not going to do that today. You know, so there's, there's, we'll do that when we get to Ezekiel. So, uh, you know, sometime in 2046 <laughs> on Sunday nights. But here we, I just want to highlight some of the, the main ideas, the main concepts, you know, that we're going to find here in um, in the, in the millennial kingdom from the book of Isaiah. Certainly other, other prophets talk about it, but Isaiah talks about it a lot, and so I wanted to highlight some of the things that we see here. Isaiah chapter 2, verses uh, 2 through 4. It says, And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains, and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow unto it. And many people shall go and say, Come you, let us go up to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths, for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge among the nations, shall rebuke many people, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nations, neither shall they learn war any more. It will be peaceful. It will be peaceful. Now, I realize some of you have careers in learning war. I mean, you, you, you protect people, you protect your nation, and I'm thankful for that. But there will be no need for any of that in the millennial kingdom. Jesus is going to go around to the nations. You know, we, we have nations today, they've got certain things, and other nations don't have it, and they say, you got to pay a lot of money to get it. And Jesus is going to go, and he's going to rebuke them. And you say, why aren't you sharing that with your neighbor? They say, well, it's our stuff. Why does that matter? That's not how I do things. And so he's going to teach us how properly to interact with each other. There will be no capitalism or socialism or any other ism except Jesusism. Because whatever he says goes, and whatever he says you get, you get, and you'll like it. Because he's good. Because he's good. There won't be any of these arguments about who has what and what you need. It'll be peaceful. Do you know that our, when you look throughout history, the, the longest period of time that we've ever had where there was no wars on the earth, it's measured in months, not years. Like you try to find periods in history where there was no fighting anywhere on the planet. It's measured in months. A thousand years. No conflict. No war. Look over at Isaiah chapter 4. Not only will it be peaceful, but here we see it will be holy. 
Isaiah 4, verses 3 and 4, and it shall come to pass that he that is left in Zion and he that remains in Jerusalem shall be called holy, even every one that is written among the living in Jerusalem. When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and shall have purged the bloodshed of Jerusalem from the midst thereof by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning. When Jesus comes back and he deals with all the rebels, the, it, one of the most frequent questions I, I get asked is, you know, well, what about people that survive the tribulation but, but don't get saved? Matthew chapter 25 covers that. Matthew 25 talks about the judgment between the sheep and the goats. It says when Jesus comes and he sets up his kingdom, if you survive the tribulation, you got to stand before the king. And if you're a believer, you get to go into the kingdom. If you're not a believer, you go into judgment. You go into, into hell. That's how it is. And so the only people that will go into the millennial kingdom are believers. There will be no unbelievers that go into the start of Jesus's kingdom. Now, over a thousand years, there will be many people born, and they will have never had the opportunity to make a choice. We'll cover that next week. But when it starts, only believers will go in, and it will be holy. It will be cleansed from all that nonsense, all the sin, everything, that, that will not be a part of, of Jesus' kingdom. The kingdom, we look out there, and you, 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 know, you, you go online, and you read the news, and, and you see all the, the horrible things that are going on. That will never happen during these thousand years. You'll never wake up to a bombing. You'll never get wake, wake up to a scandal. You'll never wake up to any of those things. Never, ever again. Doesn't that sound awesome? <laughs> it will be holy. It will be righteous. Look at Isaiah 11. Isaiah 11. Isaiah is prophesying about the Messiah, talking about how you know, uh, he'll be a stem out of Jesse, a branch shall grow out of the roots of Jesse, he'll be a, a descendant of David. And it talks about how the Spirit of the Lord is going to be upon him to help him to be the perfect man, the perfect ruler. Verse 3 of Isaiah 11, and shall make him, the Holy Spirit's going to make him of quick understanding and the fear of the Lord. So he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither shall he reprove after the hearing of his ears. That's how our rulers do things now, right? Whether they're a local ruler, foreign ruler, you know, federal ruler, it doesn't matter. They do things because of what they know and what they see, right? They make decisions based on what they think they know and what they think they see, right? And so they make mistakes, right? They're not always just. Verse 4, but with righteousness shall he judge the poor. And he shall reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. He'll smite the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. And righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the, the goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And a little child shall lead them. You're going to see things you've never seen in your entire life. You know, every once in a while, you know, you don't see it too much these days. When I was a kid, you'd see the little kid walking the dog. That was me usually. We had a dog, and it's my responsibility to walk him, you know, and I'd take him out and take him for a walk. You're not going to see a kid walking a dog. I mean, you might see that, but you're going to see a kid walking a lion, a goat, and a calf, you know, and they're all going to be hanging out, and it's going to be cool, you know. Everything will be like it's supposed to be. No more bad government decisions, no more, you know, no more not knowing what to do. You know, I look out sometimes and I think, I don't know what to do. Like, I wouldn't know what to do if I was in this situation. I wouldn't know how to fix this problem. No more of that. Everything will be righteous. Everything will be the way it's supposed to be. 
and it will be celebratory. Look at Isaiah 12, verses 3 through 6. Isaiah 12, 3, Therefore with joy you shall draw water out of the wells of salvation, and in that day shall you say, Praise the Lord, call upon his name, declare his doings among the people, make mention that his name is exalted. Sing unto the Lord, for he has done excellent things. This is known in all the earth. Cry out and shout, thou inhabitant of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel in the midst of you. Listen, there are days I pop up and I'm in a great mood and I'm excited for the day. And there are many days I pop up and I wish I had not popped up. You know, like I wish I had like another hour to go back to bed and, and the world can, you know, it can, it can just do what it wants to do for a bit before I, I get to mess with it, you know? That will not be the case. You know, when someone wakes up in the millennium, they're gonna pop up and they're gonna be like, it's a great day. It's a day, it, this is a celebration. This is a great day to party. Everywhere on the earth, people begin talking about how awesome the Lord is, how good life is. It's gonna be a celebration. Look at Isaiah 35. I told you it was Isaiah Cliff Notes. Isaiah 35. We read the first 10 verses in in our scripture reading. We're going to pick it up at verse 4 right now. And Isaiah's trying to encourage those who are really discouraged right now in, in Israel. They're really discouraged about the current situation. And so he's telling them about how things are going to be. And so in verse 4, he says, Say to them that are of a fearful heart, Be strong. Don't be afraid. Fear not. Behold, your God will come with, a rec- with, a, with vengeance. Even God with a recompense, he shall come and save you. So the Lord, he's gonna come, he's gonna deal with all the rebels, he's gonna set up a kingdom. You know, is the idea behind what he's trying to say here. And look at verse five. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. The ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as a heart, a deer, and the tongue of the dumb shall sing. For in the wilderness shall waters break out and streams in the desert and the parched ground shall become a pool of the thirsty land springs of water. And then in verses eight through 10, we read about a highway will be, no one will have to be afraid of traveling. And then finally in verse 10, it says, an everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. No one's gonna see something and go, <sighs> you won't ever do that. For a thousand years, nothing. No more crying. No more tears. The millennial kingdom will be healthy, happy, and prosperous. Very different than now. And of course, we know that it will be a time when everyone will worship the Lord. Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11 at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess to the glory of God the Father. All will worship the Lord. So that's just the first reason that those who take part in the first resurrection will be blessed. The second reason is it says, because on such the second death has no power, back in Revelation 20, verse 6. On such the second death has no power. In Hebrews chapter 9, 27, that verse most of us have probably heard. It says, it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. Those are the two deaths. Physical death, appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment. That's the second death. The two deaths are mentioned there. 
And that second death has no power over anyone who is a part, experiences the first resurrection. Physical death is a separation of our spirit and soul from our body. Spiritual death is the separation of our spirit and soul from God. And that means that physical death isn't the worst thing that can happen to a person. It's not. So, blessed are those because on such, that second death, it has no authority, no right to act in your life, no control over you, no jurisdiction. In Romans chapter 6, verse 23, it says, for the wages of sin is death. He, uh, Ezekiel 18, verse 10, it says, the soul that sins, it shall die. That's the consistent teaching of Scripture. That is the charge that has laid upon us because we sin against the Lord. But if you put your faith in Christ, you turn from your sins, then you become a believer in Christ. You follow him. You're a follower of Christ. It says, the second death has no power over you. All that authority, all that jurisdiction is stripped away from it. Romans 7, 14, Paul the Apostle said, the law is holy and just, but I am carnal, sold under sin. I'm a slave. But when you come to Christ, you are no longer a slave to sin. When you repent of your sins and put your trust in Christ, sin no longer has that authority over you. And you're not just set free to wander or set free and given nothing. It says here, and they shall be priests of God and Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. We already covered the reigning part and what that might look like. So what does it mean that we'll be priests of God and of Christ for a thousand years? Well, the job of a priest is twofold. His job was to go on behalf of God before people. So in other words, he would go to people and say, hey, this is what the Lord says, you know? And then he would go before God on behalf of people. Say, Lord, here's the needs of the people. That's the role of a priest. And so what we see here, what we see here is our job will be to be like under shepherds, you know, who go to the chief shepherd about the needs of the people that we're in charge of. You know, we'll say, Lord, we, you know, there's, you know, running low on food. Or I, I mean, I don't, know, I don't know what it'll look like. I'm making stuff up here. But, you know, I don't know exactly what it'll look like, but we'll be in, to go to the Lord and say, here's what's going on in the area you gave us, you know, jurisdiction over to, to judge and stuff and, and to be priests over, and, and here's what's going on. And then we'll go to the people and say, hey, here's what the Lord has to say. That will be our role for these thousand years. Not forever, but for these thousand years. How awesome will that be? <laughs> well, I know that when I talk about these things and we see how awesome it is, because we look at our world today, it's almost impossible to imagine an existence without war, sin, injustice, sorrow, sickness, and poverty. But that's because we've never had a world with a perfect man in charge of it. We've never seen the world like that. And until the King of Kings is here, we never will. That's why Jesus is the hope of the world. <laughs> it's the only hope of the world. And when we think about what life will be like with him on earth's throne, sometimes it sounds too good to be true. But what I'm here to tell you this morning is it is true. You know, before in Revelation 19, the angel told John, he said, listen, you're not done yet. You need to keep writing. And this is everything else that comes afterwards. And he said unto him, these are the true sayings of God. I can imagine if 
you're a tribulation saint during this time going through all this suffering and you're reading this, it probably you look out and you probably go, there's no way. No way. We're not even going to survive this mess. How, how is this happening? I can't imagine a world like that. I know, I know if you're like me, you have weird thoughts. Like there's times I think about the rapture and I'm like, what about people who are pregnant? You know, like you're going up and all of a sudden your baby materializes next to you as like a grown full child and you're like, hi, son, you know? Yay, I'm mom, you know? I mean, like, like, you know, how does that work? I mean, I think about these things, you know? I, I think about these things, I'm like, practically, how does that work, you know? And, and I realize when we think about those things that there are other people out there who think about those things and they will mock your faith. And they'll tell you, see how silly that sounds? This can't be real. What you believe is a fairy tale. Well, I'm here to tell you this morning what the angel said. I'm just the messenger. These are the true sayings of God. And it's where the rubber meets the road. Will you decide that everything you look out and you see, that you're the expert and that you can go, ain't happening. There's no way. There's no way. You're telling me there's some God out there that I can't see and, and this universe that he made it all and, and that he's got all these things, these plans he's working and, and, and you know, I, we're gonna see kids walking around with lions and goats all next to each other and, and, and you're saying you're gonna rule and reign and, and you're gonna live forever and you're gonna come back to life and, and I understand it's easy to look out in your own understanding and go, that's just not possible. I get it. But I'm here to tell you these are the true sayings of God. The angel said it for a reason, because when we look out, it does sound too good to be true. It does sound impossible. So here's where the rubber meets the road. Do we believe? Do we say, I don't know everything, (laughs) and even in what I think I can see and conclude, my understanding is limited. And I do believe this place, I mean, whenever I struggle with my faith, I know I'm going over, but this is important. Whenever I struggle with my faith, and that happens, okay, there are times I sit down and look out, and I think, God, are you there? Do you hear? Like, like when I'm in emotional pain, physical pain, or I'm stressed, or all the things that we go through in life, and I think to myself, am I just being silly? Am I just trying to find some sense of self-comfort that there's somebody out there listening? In that moment, when I'm confronted with that idea, one of the first, that's why I like to have my devotion time outside. I look out, and I realize how vast and how big, and I go, no way this happened all by itself. And then you start there. Well, if that's true, well, then... If there is a creator, well, let's start looking around. This is the only one that makes any sense. I'm not ignorant of what other faiths believe or what other books say, but they don't. They got issues. This one does not. So, is it a leap of faith? It is but it's a leap of faith into the everlasting arms. He's a good God. And, and what he says, we have a record of it coming true already. You know, you, you go from looking out at creation and seeing everything, and then you start making the leap. Israel's a nation again, right? <laughs> everything God said's happening, all right? You read down through Romans 1, you're like, I'm living it. <laughs> I'm looking out here. We're, I'm living it. Like, I'm looking out, and I'm seeing everything happen. 
seriously, guys, I mean, this is, this is how the mind works. Maybe your mind's way better than mine, and maybe you don't need to go through this mess, but that's how it works. And I just start connecting the dots. One, I start there, and I just start connecting the dots. And at that point, I go, this is my best shot. And, I, and every time, every time I, I, I try to figure it out, or you know, try to figure out how my world fits into this, this holds up. It holds up when nothing else does. Now, conversely to this awesome kingdom that's coming, this is a part of what makes judgment so awful. Because what do you live for if you don't follow the Lord, right? I mean, what did Paul say? If there's no resurrection of the dead, if we're not living for Christ, what are we living for? Right now, let's eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow we die, right? So here's the thing. That's how, that's how if you're not following the Lord, that is how you live, and to some degree, you know? Obviously, some really get the eat, drink, and be merry part, you know? Go for it, and then others do that, but in different ways. But here's the reality. No matter how hard you go at that, no matter how much you try to accomplish and achieve, the unbeliever never gets to see this world as the best it can be. You're automatically set up for failure. You can never reach that goal. And so we see they never see it because they miss out on it when it is here. So my exhortation this morning to you is this. Don't choose that disappointing ending. Choose the King of Kings. His name is Jesus. There's never been a king like this. Let's pray. Let's all stand. Lord, you know what we needed this morning, and so I pray that anything I said that was not necessary, you strike it from our minds. Lord, let your word find root in our hearts that these are the true sayings of God. And Lord, that we would cling to it with a tenacity, with a great hope, knowing that our labor isn't in vain. How many times when you talk about that future, you, you, through your servants you say that our labor is not in vain. It's not for nothing. So Lord, as that day is yet future for us, the kingdom is not here yet. Lord, we want to serve our king now. Lord, we want to be those who are living for a future kingdom. And so we recommit ourselves to that idea of you're our king. Lord, we want to win others to you. We want to have that testimony of you changing our lives. We want to have that, 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 that sense that the word of God is, is our, our, our standard, that it is our life, you know, that we look to it, we seek to live it out and share it with others. And Lord, that we bow the knee to you alone. Work that into our hearts, we pray. And thank you for this promise of the first resurrection. And Lord, for anyone who's here right now that, Lord, they're not a part of your family, they, they're not a believer, I pray you just, Lord, Lord, draw them with your bands of loving kindness. Remind them that, Lord, show them that you are worth it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.